Good morning. I just want to say thank you for this weekend. Uh, like Daniel said, it's really special when you can go somewhere and uh, think that you're going there to feed others, but then they feed you and you make friends. And this has just been such a special time. Uh, I'm just blown away by the singing this morning. I'm just so encouraged, and I, I just kind of want to keep singing, honestly. I don't, I don't really want to preach. I just want to hear you all sing. Um, man, like, there's so much entertainment in the world that just wows, like, so many people. Uh, this, is, this is the stuff right here. Like, this is the greatest spectacle uh, right here, the assembly of the Lord, that we get to hear so many beautiful voices from so many different places. Like, God has created this assembly out of nothing. Like, this would not exist except for Jesus Christ, and yet he's formed it by his blood and his body. And what a beautiful group of people. Thank you for the time this weekend. I want to uh, thank John and Ashley for having us in their home. It's just been really special to get to know them and to hang out with Bella and Macy and Rayleigh. Uh, thank you to Jeremy and Joy and to Tim and Ashley for sharing their home and just for all of you for sharing your weekend with us. It's just such a blessing. Um, great group of people here. Keep encouraging one another. I, I can't wait to live with you all in the New Jerusalem. It's going to be great. Uh, so I look forward to that. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And having disarmed the authority, the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom and Americans seek entertainment. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles and a bore to Americans. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God and the spectacle of God. We live in what has been dubbed by some as the age of the spectacle. And by spectacle, I do not mean glasses through which we look, but a thing, a spectacular, wondrous, awesome thing that we might look at. Tony Rinke, whose book inspired much of this series, and particular, a different book that he wrote, Competing Spectacles, inspired this sermon. He defines a spectacle as this, a moment in time in which collective gaze is fixed on some specific image, event, or moment. A spectacle is something that captures human attention, an instant in which our eyes and brains focus and fixate on something projected at us. 
As we celebrate Christ, the cross, and the empty tomb this morning, I want to put a pebble in our shoes and make you think about something, and you can wrestle with it this morning and this week and talk about it amongst one another. The cross truly is spectacular, but if we continue to put worthless and yet awe-inspiring spectacles in front of our eyes, maybe we can desensitize our awe and veil our faces so that we struggle to see the glory of the Lord in the greatest spectacle ever devised, the cross event. Today, we can constantly consume all manner of media as much as we desire. All manner of visual wonders and spectacles. Streaming services, sports providers, social media outlets, and gaming, the gaming industry, they continually pump out spectacular, hilarious, ridiculous, dramatic, seductive photos and videos. Everything can be turned into a spectacle today. Even Horrible things like war and local disasters and uh, political trauma and events, they can be sensationalized just for our shock and entertainment and viewing pleasure. Never before have we had such a visual feast available to us at all times. Did you know that every single day, just on YouTube alone, 82 years worth of videos are uploaded in a single day that would take a person's entire lifetime to watch. But does partaking in this visual feast ever have any effect on our appetite as we come to the Lord's table to eat his body and blood? Does it ever have affect our appetite to worship the Lord, to assemble with the saints, to read God's word and feast on him there? For many, as many of us know, uh, even listening to sermons is becoming increasingly difficult as our attention spans decrease more and more. It reminds me of what Isaiah and Jesus said. You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Can media participate in that spectacles they want our action they want our likes they want our love they want our retweets they want our sharing they want our cheering and at their best there are good spectacles the right spectacles like the temple that used to be in jerusalem the cross baptism the assembled saints the song worship we've had this morning or the lord's supper they can all these right good spectacles can draw us closer to true glory true worship and to our Lord and to one another, but at their worst. Flashy, worldly spectacles can blind us to true glory and win our cheers and our action, our likes, love, and sharing over something worthless and fleeting. It reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 4. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Can he use physical things in this world to blind our eyes? Now, you might think this is just some new thing 
that we're on the edge of and we've never dealt with before. But actually, the early Christians dealt with this. Spectacles are just simply not a new thing. The ancient world had pagan temples and idols which were crafted to be visually spectacular, to win people's worship. Imposing images of kings were scattered throughout the ancient world in order, in strategic places, in order to remind people to keep their allegiance to those who are in charge. Don't ever uprise against them. Ancient Greece was known for their spectacles in the amphitheater. Plays, comedies, tragedies, performances of all sorts. Sporting competitions were also very popular. People ran, wrestled, and boxed one another bloody to the cheering and the booing of the crowds. And the arena of the Roman Empire was the most spectacular of them all and gruesome. Animal hunts, gladiator fights, and public executions all took place before the gathering of hungry crowds who wanted entertainment, wanted a spectacle. And even then, though, they, maybe they didn't realize it, they did not merely serve to entertain. Politicians and wealthy people paid for and put these exhibitions and shows on to leverage, to leverage the allegiance of their people to win social and political power. Pardon, but that is similar to how our own government subsidizes with millions and millions of dollars pro sports teams if and only if they will fly the flag and play the anthem. We're not alone trying to figure out what sort of relationship Christians should or should not have with the world's entertainment, though. Thank God that we're not the first generation trying to figure this out. Around AD 200, Christian author Tertullian wrote a short book called De Spectaculus, or On the Shows. To be clear, I'm not citing him because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but simply because he wrote an interesting book and was a Christian and was trying to wrestle with these things, and we can wrestle with what he said as well and think about it. But in this book, it's a short book you can find online translated, he rebukes Christians for returning to the shows that they had once abandoned, the plays, the circuses, the fights, and the various spectacles and amusements that Rome, the Roman world offered at the time. And throughout the book, he offers four general reasons why they must abstain as they previously had before. First, he argues that the spectacles back then were associated with idolatry and demons. Second, he said that the things the actors and fighters do are sinful. Tony Rinke summarizes it like this. He condemned violent sports that disfigured the bodies of God's image bearers. I think something Christians could bear to listen to very carefully today, I think. He reasoned that if it's sinful to do on the streets, why would you go and pay for it and watch it on the stage and be entertained by it? Third, he said, the chief sign to pagans that someone had adopted the Christian faith in their day was their rejection of these amusements. That was rather shocking to me to, to read that. According to Tertullian, in their day, the first public thing that Christians stopped doing that, that signaled to everyone that they had become Christians, they rejected the world's entertainment, didn't participate in it. 
But in the final six chapters, Tertullian offers a fourth objection that relates very heavily to what I'm talking about today. And maybe you can relate to this. He said that Christians are sighing for goalposts, the stage, the dust, and the arena, when they should long for and be satisfied by the spectacles that God has given us in Jesus Christ. He asks the question rhetorically and argues, where's the same hunger for Christ's body and blood that we get to partake of on the Lord's Supper? Where's the same energy to conquer sin? Where's the same anticipation over the Lord's return? Where's the same eagerness to study the Bible, to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You and I have a great challenge of coming back to the table week after week after week and being awed by the spectacle of the cross that never changes but needs to be made new. We know the story, and it's not new, but worldly spectacles, they are always fresh and they are always new. And unfortunately, we can fill our hunger to feel like we are part of an exciting story full of meaning and wonder with a quick tap. But does it dare satisfy our hunger and thirst for our Lord, our wonder over the cross, our anticipation of his coming and his kingdom? And the meaning that he gives us as his children and his church and his body to fill the earth with his glory. There is an exciting story full of wonder and meaning in the cross. If only we will continually press into it, meditate on what Jesus has done, and wonder. Because in fact, the scriptures themselves say that though the cross was a spectacle devised by the Romans to expose a fake king, it was also a spectacle devised by God to overthrow the rulers and authorities of this age and to wow the world and draw them to himself. We oftentimes highlight the pain of the cross, but crucifixions back then were especially designed by the Romans to not only maximize pain, but also shame. The Romans, they made a public spectacle of thousands and thousands of runaway slaves and insurrectionists by stripping them naked and pinning them to a tree or to a cross at eye level by a busy road so everyone passing by could see and be warned. And the spectacle was designed to send a very clear message. Caesar is Lord. Rome is in charge. Be quiet. Get in your place. But Jesus' crucifixion carried an irony that made it extra spectacular and somewhat humorous to those who were cruel. He made himself out to be a king, and so they adorned him like a king with a scarlet robe, a crown of thorns. They put a reed in his hand and bowed before him and cried, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they took his scepter and they hit him over the head with it and spit on him and ripped off his robe. And then, just as others who were crucified, he had to carry his cross, though eventually someone else helped him, around the road to the place where he'd be crucified, a walking spectacle, signaling to all to look at him, look at this joke, look at this fake king. And then they wrote the charge above his head. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. 
And crowds, they gathered for the spectacle and mocked him. There was just something funny, amusing about the sight of a fake king being pinned up on Caesar's cross. So will the Lord Caesar, son of God, do to the man who makes himself out to be Lord and son of God. His YouTube video would have gone viral and the comment section would have been full of mocking. But I want you to turn to Luke chapter 23. And I want you to see how one man here in Luke, in a moment, one man in Mark, saw right through this show put on by Satan, Israel, and Rome. And the first man is this criminal crucified next to Jesus. Luke 23, and I want you to notice verses 39 to 43. In the midst of all this mocking and spitting and the fake king scene, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This blows my mind. Before this criminal's eyes is a beaten and bloodied, pinned on a cross, Jesus. The whole scene was designed to expose Jesus as a fake, fraud king. But the criminal, somehow, not when he comes out of the tomb, but when he's on the cross, is somehow able to see something different. He's able to see that this is Jesus, son of David, and I don't know how, but one day he's still going to come in the kingdom power that the prophets prophesied about. He didn't let the world's spectacle blind him to the true wonder that God was putting on display before him and his eyes. This beaten and bloodied man who's about to die is somehow the king who's going to rescue us all. And what a spectacle. As Jesus dies like a sinner a criminal receives a divine pardon from Jesus. What a wonder. Turn back to Mark 15. And there's someone else who sees past his own spectacle that he's putting on the Roman centurion in charge of making sure Jesus dies. Roman, uh, or sorry, Mark 15, and notice verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Jesus on the cross is supposed to be further proof and evidence that Caesar is Lord and son of God, but Jesus is the fraud. And only when we see how Jesus comes out of the tomb do we say Jesus is Lord, as we should. And yet, like the criminal, when the centurion saw that in this way he breathed his last, how Jesus died, then he exclaimed at the spectacle, Son of God. Here there was no miracle, simply the humility and grace with which he died was a spectacle of its own that created faith in the heart of this Gentile. We sing, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride when I survey the wondrous cross on which Jesus died. When did we first see the light? At the cross, at the cross is when I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. Satan and the rulers of this age planned the cross as a spectacle of rebellion to say, God is dead, he is not king, we don't want him anymore. But Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that in the cross, Jesus disarmed Satan and all the rulers and authorities in heavenly places that were rebels, and he made a public spectacle of them. Take that. See the empty tomb? What good did your cross do, Satan? And when the Greeks in John 12 asked to see Jesus, Jesus replied that he would cast down the God of this world and draw all nations, including those Greeks who were asking to see him, to himself. By what means? When he was lifted up on the cross. That is how he would draw all people to himself. The whole cross event was also planned not only by Satan, but by God as a spectacle for the ages to cast down Satan, to put sin to death, to exalt the son as true king, to demonstrate God's love for us all to all eternity so that 2,000 years later we still celebrate that spectacle that happened over a few hours. And he has truly drawn all nations to himself. Do we want to see a carefully crafted story full of irony, highs, lows, foreshadowing? Look to the scriptures and see the climax of all history at the cross. Do we want to see the ultimate upset? Well, the powers of earth, they made a spectacle of Jesus and all the rulers patted each other on the back and went home and sealed the tomb. But... The tomb could not hold him in. He tore the bars away. Jesus, our Lord. Do we want to see conquest? 
Peter tells us that Jesus, after he was raised alive in the spirit, he went to the spiritual powers who previously rebelled and he proclaimed his victory over them. Ha! Who's king and lord of all now? Do you want to see a messed up family finally come back together once again? The table of the Lord around the body and blood of the Lord at the cross of the Lord. Are we thirsty for blood? Here again, we have the Lord's. Do we want to see a love story that ends with a wedding? At the cross, the son heroically saves and rescues and gives his life for his captive lost bride. And a wedding feast to end all others is coming. At the cross, Satan and his forces are thrown down. Captives are set free from his grip. And history reaches its climax in a decisive victory. And the greatest love ever known is put on display for all to wonder at and come to. How can we highlight the spectacle of the cross today of what God has done in Jesus? There's a lot of ways we can conclude this lesson. And the way I'm going to do it is by spending a few minutes considering three spectacles that we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands today that demonstrate the cross to each of us so that we might continue to wonder as we try to set aside the secular spectacles as much as we can. The first Jesus and cross displaying spectacle that we have before us right now today is the assembled body of the Lord. The New Testament teaches that this is the body of the Lord. Paul says in Ephesians 1.22 that the church is the body of Jesus, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We were commanded from the beginning to fill the earth and subdue it. Jesus is filling the earth and subduing it. And how is he doing it? The church is the fullness of Jesus's body by which he fills all in all. Here we have surrounding us the body of Jesus. If we have eyes to see it, we can experience, in a sense, Jesus incarnated before us. Touch and see. Here are his hands. Here before you are his feet, his heart, his mouth. I'm thankful we have Zoom for when we need it, but we all know that just doesn't match up, does it? To this. To the body of Christ made flesh all around us. There is something powerful about just sitting in and being in the assembly of a people in whom God, the Father, Son, and Spirit mystically dwell and are incarnated in some way through us. May we always, always set aside unnecessary distractions to prioritize and be fully present to be in and experience the wonder of this spectacle that is here this morning. A second spectacle that displays Jesus and the cross is the suffering church. God put Jesus on display 
at the cross to send a message to the world. And the interesting thing is that he intends to put us on display before one another and to the world in our suffering as well to demonstrate the story and power of the cross and the empty tomb. Did you see that in the scripture reading that Tim read for us from 2 Corinthians 4? Paul says there that wherever he goes, Jesus' death and resurrection life is made manifest to all as he is broken uh, or as he is hurt, perplexed, afflicted, and yet not shattered and not destroyed. The essential message is that here Jesus, uh, Paul is going around everywhere carrying his cross and yet still walking, still carrying the cross so that the death of Jesus and the powerful life of Jesus are manifested in his body at the same time. Somehow he's still going and yet suffering at the same time. That, that, that contrast put together in one, the cross and the empty tomb. He talks about suffering elsewhere like this in Corinthians as well. 1 Corinthians 4, 9. I sometimes think God has put us to spot apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. 2 Corinthians two fourteen. similar. But thank God he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. There's a cultural reference here that's a little distant uh, to us. But the short story is this. When Rome conquered other peoples, they brought back some prisoners and spoils of war. And they held a big parade in the city of Rome. A triumphal procession, they called it. The Roman general would lead a train of chained captives in procession through the streets to demonstrate Rome's power. Look at these losers that we beat up. We are the powerful ones now. They serve us. In fact, they would slaughter some of the captives at the end of the parade. And Paul says that we at least that he, and I think by extension us, he's an example to us as we imitate him, that he and we are becoming like the captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Everywhere we go, Jesus is the general leading along a train of captives throughout the world, and we are carrying our cross in chains behind him. And everywhere, the aroma of the knowledge of Christ and God is being spread through us in our suffering yet living and enduring lives, our cross and empty tomb shaped lives. Our media loves the story of how weak, submissive people become self-sufficient masters of their own fate who sometimes take revenge. And yet we are put on display as we take up our cross We self-determined rebels and enemies of God decide to become weak for Jesus. We don't seek our glory and certainly not revenge. We sacrifice ourselves for God and for one another. We accept joyful suffering when God seeks to discipline us for our good. At least we learn joyful suffering. might take some time as we look at Jesus. And yet in all of that, as we learn and are trained, if once we start to do it right, 
we continue to carry the cross and yet we're still full of joy, life, and vitality, and hope. We serve for God's glory through the pain. And when the world sees that, that tells them that there's something different. There's a spectacle on display there. And when we see that in one another, what a beautiful thing. And man, isn't that such an opportunity, such a blessing when we get to see that in one another? And we can only have that if we really know each other and we're in each other's lives. But isn't that a blessing when you see another brother or sister that God is disciplining and you see them walking in the assembly each morning, no, each Sunday, each Wednesday, whatever, knowing what they're going through. And I think you could see with your VR goggles, there's a cross that they're carrying. And yet they're singing, Jesus is Lord, I exalt thee, and still going. That teaches us, and it teaches the world. As Paul says, We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So that death is at work in us, but life in you. As we're dying and yet living and continue going, life is at work in other people because they're being encouraged to take up that same cross and share the life of Jesus. A third and final spectacle that we'll consider this morning that rivals the spectacles of this world is the table of the Lord, the body and blood of Jesus. And Jeremy, this is the ultimate food illustration. Totally stealing it. You remember maybe, and if you don't, go read it later in Isaiah 55. When Isaiah invites the hungry to the feast, he chastises them. He says, why? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? It's so easy for us, isn't it, to use our screens to dine at the table of demons and to spend our time and give our attention to something that does not satisfy. Food, spectacles that just don't fill us up at all. And Isaiah asks, Why? Why do you do that? Why do you keep spending your labor and your money eating bread, watching stuff that just does not satisfy, that only turns rotten in your stomach and in your heart? Why do you do that? Why do you keep going back? I wonder, you think about it, but I wonder if it's because we're more like dogs than we realize and we care to admit. Try training a dog to not eat their vomit. Try. It's hard. I mean, they vomit and you might be right on them, but they're pulling at it. If you're pulling on the collar, they're pulling right at it. I want that. And you're like, you're nasty. Why do I even have a dog living in my house? But they're thinking, yeah, the food in the bowl might be more substantial later, but the vomit is here and it's now. Give it to me. Leave me alone. Like dogs, we are always hungry and on the lookout for food to see glory, experience meaning, and for our hearts and minds and eyes to be taken up with something to do and to wonder at and to be a place to go and to be a part of. But this morning we gathered to consume at the, Lord, at the table of the Lord 
we gather to consume the Lord. And they say that taste and smell affect us powerfully. We might forget about a person or forget about a place, but then smell and taste jog our memory. And we're like, oh, it's good to be home. I smell that. I taste that. Mom's chicken enchiladas. Here, our Lord has asked us to remember him. And one of the ways we do that, as our brother has pointed out, is by focusing. And he has also asked us to remember him, not only through an intellectual exercise, but also through a physical exercise, to remember him with our noses, with our mouths, and even with our stomachs. Here we remember Jesus by, in a sense, eating Jesus. Here we come hungry and broken to be healed and filled. Here we're reminded, and may we be reminded each week as we eat that body and drink that blood, that the promises of the world, they hold no hope and they will not satisfy us. The table of demons has not been good. Here our restless hearts and bodies are taught to taste and see that the Lord indeed is good. Here we train our mouths, minds, hearts, and guts to wait for the Lord and his table and the final banquet feast and the show-stopping spectacle to end all spectacles when the Lord comes from heaven and we gather on his mountain to dine with him. Wait for that to fill us. And may I add that one practice you could add in that I've been trying from time to time, not 100% of the time, but I've been trying from time to time that the early Christians did is they abstained from food in the morning until they got to the supper. They didn't fast all day. They abstained from food in the morning until they got to the supper so that their stomachs were rumbling and they were hungry and ready to consume him. And that heightened the visual the body experience of saying, yes, Lord, I will be satisfied in you. Are you hungry? Are you restless? Are you tired? Until that final day, Jesus has said to us, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. We cannot yet see Jesus face to face, but we can listen to his words and consume him in his words. And he invites us to taste and consume him and see that he is good. This supper that we've partaken of this morning and we partake of week by week is just a foretaste of the feast and the final day. As Jesus says in Luke 22, I have longed to partake of this feast with you because I'm not going to partake of it again until it's made new, till the wine is new in the kingdom of God. It's just a foretaste of what we will have one day. And so let this supper train us, eyes, body, and soul, to look back to the cross, to look now at Jesus' presence among us, and to look forward to the day of the feast with Jesus. Because one day... We will be fully satisfied for all time in him. And we will see his face and behold his beauty. We won't cower in fear. Because if we're satisfied in him now, 
We won't be afraid when he comes in the clouds, but we'll be excited and satisfied and full of joy. May we, brothers and sisters, have the discipline to set aside more often the continual visual feast of our culture so that we can develop better appetites for all the wonder that God has worked in Jesus and the cross. Do you need to be drawn closer to Jesus and the cross this morning? Maybe you've wandered away from the cross, but you found yourself in a desert. But guess what? We're all on the journey to Mount Zion. And you know where there is a home in the wilderness, a rest along the way through the desert of this life and the wilderness as we journey to the promised land. It's in the cross. That's where we see the light. That's where we gain hope and energy to keep going. Come back to him. Come back to the body of Christ. And if you've not put him on, you can do that in a wonderful spectacle for all to see and for you to experience as you're plunged underneath the waters and you die and come up alive to live renewed, to be forgiven, to experience and have the spirit of God in you to regenerate you. Will you come, repent of your sins and put on Jesus? If there's anything we can do, Come forward to the front while we stand and sing.